Luke chapter 2. We'll be taking a break from the Missio Christi series to talk about Christmassy type things. From Luke chapter 2. Uh, I do want to commend you guys, both the Carpentry Campus and the Ventura Campus. You've been doing an incredible job this week of supplying for the homeless and the less fortunate. You guys have brought so many clothes, so many tarps, so many sleeping bags, so many blankets, given so much money. We actually have over four garages completely stuffed with things. Praise the Lord. And that's after having given everything we can to every homeless person we could find, like fully buffed them out, and we have all this stuff still. So uh, we'll get it out there, you know what I mean, as the weather continues to change and stuff like that. And we're getting going pretty soon on uh, Laundry Love, doing laundry for the homeless, and you can donate for that and volunteer for that. But you guys have done an incredible job, both campuses. Um, continue to bring stuff if you want, we'll take it and we'll get it to those people. This morning, kind of unrelated but related, I get up around 3.30 on Sunday mornings and uh, about 4 a.m. my email went off. And at 4 a.m. you get an email and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what is this? And it was Gospel for Asia, which is a ministry that I've supported from time to time. And they've got this incredible thing going on for Christmas where you can buy livestock for families in Asia uh, that will change their lives. Like you can buy a family of chickens for a family. You can buy a goat or a water buffalo. That's like the high ditch thing, you know what I mean? Uh, cows and all these different animals. And it will change lives and change communities by buying livestock. So I, I just recommend you go to gospelasia.com. My heart was moved this morning. I'm gonna go buy a bunch of animals later on this week. And they'll deliver them in the name of Jesus. And Jesus will be glorified and communities will be transformed because people have this new way to sustain themselves and their families and their communities. So I recommend that to you this Christmas season. We're in Luke chapter two. We better ask the Lord to bless this. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate who you are and what you've done. Thank you that as a nation, we observe something nationally called Christmas. We proclaim it to be about you as much as they're trying to kick you out of it. Lord, we say it's all about you. We say that the holidays are actually holy days and that it is Christ Christmas. And so we ask Jesus that you would become bigger in our lives this Christmas. And then because of that, you get bigger in our families, bigger in our cities, bigger in our nation, bigger in the world. We ask that Jesus, you, by your power and your authority as a king over all kings, would claim this season as your own. And you'd reveal more of yourself. We ask on our world an outpouring of grace an outpouring of revelation, a loosening of lips to declare who you are to the ends of the earth. We ask for a loosening of our wallets to demonstrate your generosity to the ends of the earth, that we would demonstrate who you are by giving and we would proclaim who you are with our mouths. Your gospel would be known. Thank you that the Christmas prize is you yourself. What we gain in the gospel is Christ and we ask that that prize would go forth in all the earth and that you'd use us for that. So this Christmas season, Jesus, just rattle us a little bit. Bring us a little nearer to your heart. Take more control of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Christmas time. Christmas time is a happy time. 
for many of us. It's a happy time for me. I'm one of those ones that has a great home. I've got a wonderful family and uh, blessed with more than I need in every way. And for me, Christmas is an incredibly happy time. And what's happy about my life only seems happier at Christmas time. But that's not true for everybody. There are a lot of people around us who are suffering, experiencing difficulty, who wouldn't characterize their lives as happy in every way. And for them, Christmas time only accentuates, exacerbates, and exaggerates those things that make them unhappy. And so more than any time of the year for them, Christmas is an unhappy time. And in our culture, then, we live with this tension where at Christmas, the happy get happier. The unhappy get less happy. Those who have seem to have more. Those who have not seem to have less. Those who rejoice, rejoice all the more. Those who weep seem to weep more. And so there's a tension in our culture. And there's this dichotomy that's made ever more prevalent during the holiday. Christ was concerned with this. Jesus is always pressing upon us the value of people, the plight of those who are less fortunate, unhappy, impoverished, suffering, marginalized. Jesus won't let us escape them. He won't let us for very long. If we pursue Christ, he will not let us put them in the periphery for very long. He's always holding them before us by his spirit and by his word. God is always wanting to impress upon us the value of people. Not in a purely humanitarian sense, not overvaluing people. God is more valuable than people. God is the most valuable one. Christ is most important. But the more that we realize that, the surpassing value of Jesus, the beauty of him, the more we experience that and exegete that and begin to understand that, the more we look at Jesus, the more we are forced to see the suffering. He just makes it that way because he is very concerned about the impoverished, the homeless, the suffering, the marginalized. The more you get to know somebody, the more you get to know what they're concerned about, what troubles them, what they're passionate about, what they're involved in. As a church, we're getting to know Jesus more and more. And that means we're getting to know the broken more and more, the poor among us. And the Christmas story confronts us with problems like poverty, homelessness, marginalization. It it confronts us with these things. Now, the Christmas story is hard to deal with because we've all heard it so much, right? We've all heard it so much. We kind of know it by rote. And and so what happens is when you know a story that well and you begin to hear it again, your brain automatically clicks off. You're like, I know that. Got that one. It's awesome. Great. But I think there's more that maybe some of us have ever seen or cared to see 
in that story. Common points of reference, things that we've all talked about before, but maybe now this year demand our attention like never before. Force us to see people who are suffering. Because in the Christmas story, Christ makes their story his story. In the incarnation, he steps into a specific context, having the ability as God to come as anyone he wanted to come as. He could have came as any king, in any glorious manner, in any influential way. But he came in a specific way and embedded then within the historical account of that is a tapestry of brokenness that we cannot ignore. Luke chapter 2 verse 1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while uh, that guy was governor of Syria. And all who were proceeding to register for the census went to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. I want to take those common points of reference the manger and the fact that there was no room for them in the inn and de-romanticize them, not de-historicize them. They are historical. This is a historical account. That's very clear in the grammar and the content. But what happened historically? We like to paint a pretty picture on it. At least I do because it makes me more comfortable. But when God came, When God draped himself in humanity and stepped into human history, he chose in his sovereignty to be born as a homeless person. I mean, he was literally actually homeless that night. There was no room for them in the end, in the end. There was nowhere they could go, no place for them to be. And so they went where animals were living. They were literally and actually homeless. Not only did Jesus come as a homeless person, he came impoverished. He came in a context of poverty. When Christ was born, he was wrapped in cloths and he was laid in a feeding trough. They were in a stable where there was animals and the stench of animals and the fecal matter of animals and the hair of animals and the dirt of animals and he was laid in a manger where the animals congregated, where there was their saliva and their leftovers and everything else. When the God of the universe draped himself in humanity and came into human history, he came as poor, dirty, and homeless. Not by mistake but by design. It's easy for us to say, well, yeah, but I mean, it's such a cool story. No room in the end. And so make room for him in your heart. And that's why. And, you know, it's easy for us to romanticize it and spiritualize it and think, well, yeah, he was 
kind of homeless, I guess, for one night. And I'm sure they cleaned up the stable a little bit. But it's not as though they were poor for one night marrying Joseph and Jesus. They were poor. They were a poor family. That's clear down in verse 21, going through a few verses. And when the eight days were complete, before a circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. For it's written, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Look at verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of Moses, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now, there's a quotation from the law of Moses there, but it's not the whole quotation. There was a specific offering that was supposed to be given, according to Leviticus chapter 12, on this occasion. But what it says in Leviticus chapter 12 is that the people were to bring a lamb for this sacrifice, but if they couldn't afford a lamb, if they didn't have what was normal in Israel to have, a lamb to sacrifice, if their income level was below normal, if they couldn't afford that very normal thing, then they could bring these few birds as a sacrifice. This story is screaming at us that the family of Jesus was poor. Not one time, all the time. And when it came to what would have been one of the most important occasions in all of Jewish life, bringing that sacrifice at the circumcision of your Jewish firstborn son, who wouldn't want to bring their best? And their very best was the very least that was allowed under the law. God chose to put his son in a poor family, one that was living below what was normal to be able to afford in Israel during the time. His poverty was not a one-night occasion, nor was his homelessness. It's easy for us to say, no room in the inn, but later on they'd go back to Nazareth and go back to their home. What? But what we see is later on in his ministry, Jesus chose for himself homelessness. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The hard cold truth is that Christ began his life homeless and he ended his life homeless. By design, a sovereign decision, but what that teaches us is whom God chose to identify with when he came. Who was it most important to be near to? He could have came anyway. But he came and he continued as poor and homeless. And he he describes the plight of homeless people perfectly. He says, even foxes have somewhere to go when it gets cold. When the sun goes down, they've got some little hole that they crawl into. And the birds have a nest to snuggle into. But I, like so many people around, you and me, Christ said, like I, I have nowhere to lay my head. And it screams at us a Christmas story. Who and what issues are important to God? Even in the announcement that is given, I mean, think about it. The king is born. He's born weird. He's born poor and homeless. 
Nevertheless, the king, the savior of Israel has come. And so now there's going to be an announcement. There's going to be messengers. And who do they give the news to first? Well, we've got it right in front of us. Verse eight. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is called Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they came in haste and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. This is one of the most important announcements in all of history. And if you and I had something incredibly important to announce, we would never announce it to shepherds. We, again, have romanticized shepherds and made them into, you know, something cool. And they are kind of cool. But in that culture, they were not considered cool. In that culture, they were despised. Because of their profession, and they didn't go into it because they had a lot of options. Because of their profession, they were made ceremonially unclean. So they were cut off from the religious life of Israel. And Israel were a religious people. They were a religious nation, and that was their identity. And when you were cut off from the religious experience of Israel, it wasn't as though, oh, I miss church sometimes. You were excluded from your national identity, your communal identity, who God had deemed you to be. You were excluded. You were marginalized, you were shut out, you were cut off, you were pushed to the side, to the periphery. So much so is this true for the shepherds that if they witnessed a crime and they wanted to testify about it, nobody would listen. They weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law. What they had to say was considered worthless. These were the ones in society without a voice that nobody would hear. Nobody gave a place to them. They weren't included. They were excluded. They weren't heard. They were shut off. And yet Jesus wants the whole world to know that he's come. God wants the whole world to know that the Savior has come. And he gives it to the last people on earth you should entrust something important with. Again, this just begins to scream at us who God is most concerned about. The poor, the homeless, those without a voice. And then there's one more group that he identifies with. He identifies with the alien, the exile, the refugee. Matthew gives us a little information Luke doesn't. And I'll just read it to you in Matthew chapter 2 starting in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to make a search for the child to destroy him. 
And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt until the death of Herod. There are certain people in the world, and there always has been, who are forced away from their home, who become exiles, aliens, refugees, because they're fleeing from violence and oppression. The angel said to Jesus and the family, really to his dad, flee your home and everything you know. Go hide in Egypt, otherwise Herod will kill you. So when, when God comes, he immediately and powerfully identifies himself with the poor, the homeless, those without a voice, and those who had to flee their home. The worst off in society. This is who he comes as, and this is who he comes to. And the Christmas story forces it upon us. We can't read it carefully or honestly without seeing that. And what God is wanting to do by giving us a Christmas story and including these details, these realities, is that he wants the world, when the world goes looking for Jesus, to also see the impoverished. When the world goes looking for Jesus, to also see the broken, to also see the marginalized, because he made his story their story. And he wants every generation that would look to Jesus and look more carefully at Jesus to see those people. Now, if it ended there, it's all too easy because we all feel guilty. We all feel guilty for having more than enough. We all feel guilty for not being homeless, for not being poor, for not being a marginalized, so on and so forth. And if it were there, it would be too easy because it's too easy to bring coats and to bring tarps and to bring blankets and sleeping bags and to give money, the stuff we've all done this week and we'll do this next week and continue to do. It's too easy. It hurts. We see it. We get it. His story became their story. He cares about their plight. We have to do something about their situation. But what we must also realize is that their story is our story. Jesus doesn't leave it there. The incarnation happens. And embedded in it are all these stories, this tapestry of brokenness. But when Jesus begins to exegete the incarnation, the coming of the kingdom, when he begins to teach the people and explain what it all means, he gives an additional definition to poverty. Because he would say in John chapter 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And every one of his hearers would go, a slave. Slave is a person in a bad situation. Not a lot of economic hope there. Wasn't their first choice. Not a real bright future. He would take slave out of the context of being a social, economic construct, and he would say, if you slay, if you sin, excuse me, you are a slave. And then he would put it this way. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. He now adds another definition to poor. It's not just about those that don't have certain material things. It's about those with a very real real spiritual problem. He would say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not just leaving it to the physically hungry and thirsty, but the spiritually hungry and thirsty. And then he would say in the book of Revelation to a certain church, he would say to them, you say that you are wealthy and have need of nothing. You do not identify yourself with the poor, in other words. Then he would say, but I say to you that you are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. He doesn't spiritualize poverty. He reveals the fullness of poverty. We're the only ones that have this false dichotomy of the material and the spiritual, and we like to keep them separate. That's not the way it is in God's realm. The incarnation, when God, who is spirit, became flesh, teaches us that God cares about both, and that God sees the poverty on both levels. That there is material and physical and social and economic poverty. And there is spiritual poverty. And this story of brokenness has to be seen as our own story. That we are the broken and the poor, the cut off. And what the Christmas story does when we read it that way is it starts to strip away from us everything that we see is giving us value. I'm valuable because I have this. I'm valuable because I got that covered. I'm valuable because I've made this and I've got that title and I'm in that situation. And he just starts to strip that away from humanity and wants to show us our utter depravity, our total poverty, our separateness from God without him. We also are seen as the oppressed and the homeless or the exiled. We're seen as being oppressed by sin and the devil. We're seen as having a certain kind of homelessness in Ephesians 2. It says, remember that you were one, at one time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel like the shepherds and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so this cheery Christmas message is that God always wants to communicate to humanity simultaneously our poverty and our importance. We are impoverished by our separation from him and our breaking of his rules. And we're important to him by the quality of his nature because of who he is, not who we are. And where we err is when we, on a regular basis, fail to see both. The physically, economically, and socially poor around us and our own poverty and brokenness. And we're called to deal with both. Because a Christmas story is Christ stepping into both. And as much as we, we organize and orchestrate our lives to get away from those issues of poverty and homelessness and so on and so forth, 
Christ always brings us back to them. And it's in effect him saying, I identify myself with them first. And if you're going to identify with me, you have to be identified with them. And Israel was always given rules, a whole theology of caring for the alien, the stranger, the poor, the broken. And we, the church, all the more. So what we do then is we become a little more savvy about that tension in our culture that I spoke of. That at Christmas, there's a bigger gap between the haves and the have-nots. We don't feel guilty about having. It's okay to have. But we always look to the have-nots. We don't feel guilty about rejoicing because we who have been saved from our spiritual poverty should rejoice more than anyone in the world. I mean, we should rejoice. Like, Christians at Christmas should be going nuts. We should be having the biggest parties in the world. When Israel was delivered from, state, from slavery, God told them about a bunch of parties they should have. And they got in trouble when they didn't keep those parties, those feasts, those celebrations, and they didn't show up for them. They were busted. It's like God said, thou shalt party and eat and have a good time. And if anybody has a reason to party in this world, it's Christians. The partying should look a little different than the world. Just a, a little bit. I don't have to tell you guys that. Ventura campus, especially you, it should look a little different than the parties of the world. But we should rejoice and be free to rejoice and we shouldn't feel guilty about that. That we have enough to eat and we're going to have him. That we have a roof over our head and Christ is building a mansion for us in heaven. He said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. It's going to be killer. And then I'm going to come back and get you and take you there. We should rejoice and rejoice and rejoice and not feel ashamed about that. But the New Testament also tells us then to weep with those who weep. So we should be the biggest partiers and the biggest givers. That's who Christians should be. The most celebration and the most action on behalf of those who are hurting the most. And the problems that Christ stepped into of homelessness and poverty and marginalization and oppression and violence that causes people to have to flee their homes. Those problems are so big that it's easy for us to say, oh. And let the bigness of them cause paralysis in us. But we can't do that. We have to do something. We have to do something. And we can't merely do something to placate our guiltiness because I do that. I feel guilty that I have so much, like give a bunch of it away. I feel better about myself. That's, that's not Christianity. That's cold, dead religion. Christianity is caring what God cares about. Identifying with those that Christ chose to identify with. And going into the world as Christ went into the world with all of our rejoicing and being ready and willing to weep. Knowing all that we've received 
And so being the most generous people on the face of the earth. And so I would say to us, as a church this year, party like you've never partied before. Have the greatest Christmas ever. Buy a bunch of gifts for people. And I hope you get a bunch of gifts. I hope I get a bunch of gifts. There's nothing wrong with getting gifts. But I hope that we give like we've never given before. I hope that we care like we've never cared before. The more we see Jesus, the more we see the plight of people. The more we do something, the more the mission of God goes forth for the glory of God. Amen? Lord, we thank you for these beautiful truths and we thank you for saving by your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. We who were so bankrupt. Thank you, God, for so great a mercy. Lord, restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. Having once been so poor, reveal to us all the riches of Christ and the glory of God and our inheritance. Cause us to always be and humble all of that. Lord, we pray for those who this Christmas are unhappy and more bummed out than ever before and have good reason to be. We ask that you would mobilize your church to demonstrate and to proclaim you to them. That you give us divine opportunities to show forth your grace and your glory. And we thank you for those who have so much this year. We have so many reasons to rejoice, myself included. We thank you, God. We thank you, Lord. That's your mercy in our lives. Thank you, God. For those of us that will go home tonight to a warm place, beautiful family, a good meal, fresh clothes, God, we say thank you. That's from you. Every good and perfect gift is from you. You clothe the lilies of the field, take care of the birds, and you do the same for us. Thank you. Give us a heart of gratitude and generosity, Lord. I invite you to get on your face before this beautiful king of ours. I invite you to pray with each other and pray with the prayer team if you like. They'll be on your right and your left. Same thing at Ventura Campus, your right and your left. Jesus is more beautiful than we ever imagined. It's getting more clear all the time. He's more awesome than we ever dared to think. So let's press into him harder than we've ever done before.